Chapter Five of Villette. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Villette by Charlotte Bronte. Chapter Five. Turning a New Leaf. My mistress being dead and I once more alone, I had to look out for a new place. About this time, I might be a little, very little, shaken in nerves. I grant I was not looking well, but on the contrary, thin, haggard, and hollow-eyed, like a sitter-up at night, like an overwrought servant, or a placeless person in debt. In debt, however, I was not, nor quite poor, for though Miss Marchmont had not had time to benefit me, as on that last night she said she intended, yet after the funeral my wages were duly paid by her second cousin, the heir, an avaricious-looking man with pinched nose and narrow temples, who indeed, I heard long afterwards, turned out a thorough miser, a direct contrast to his generous kinswoman, and a foil to her memory, blessed to this day by the poor and needy. The possessor, then, of fifteen pounds, of health, though worn, not broken, and of a spirit in similar condition, I might still, in comparison with many people, be regarded as occupying an enviable position. An embarrassing one it was, however, at the same time, as I felt with some acuteness on a certain day, of which the corresponding one in the next week was to see my departure from my present abode, while with another I was not provided. In this dilemma I went, as a last and sole resource, to see and consult an old servant of our family, once my nurse, now housekeeper at a grand mansion not far from Miss Marchmont's. I spent some hours with her. She comforted, but knew not how to advise me. Still all inward darkness I left her about twilight. A walk of two miles lay before me. It was a clear, frosty night. In spite of my solitude, my poverty, and my perplexity, my heart, nourished and nerved with the vigour of a youth that had not yet counted twenty-three summers, beat light, and not feebly, not feebly, I am sure, or I should have trembled in that lonely walk which lay through still fields, and passed neither village nor farmhouse nor cottage. I should have quailed in the absence of moonlight, for it was by the leading of stars only I traced the dim path. I should have quailed still more in the unwanted presence of that which to-night shone in the north, a moving mystery, the aurora borealis. But this solemn stranger influenced me otherwise than through my fears. Some new power it seemed to bring. I drew in energy with the keen low breeze that blew on its path. A bold thought was sent to my mind. My mind was made strong to receive it. Leave this wilderness, it was said to me, and go out hence. Where was the query? I had not very far to look. Gazing from this country parish in that flat, rich middle of England, I mentally saw within reach what I had never yet beheld with my bodily eyes. I saw London. The next day I returned to the hall, and asking once more to see the housekeeper, I communicated to her my plan. Mrs. Barrett was a grave, judicious woman, though she knew little more of the world than myself, 
but grave and judicious as she was she did not charge me with being out of my senses and indeed i had a staid manner of my own which ere now had been as good to me as cloak and hood of hodden grey since under its favour i had been enabled to achieve with impunity and even approbation deeds that if attempted with an excited and unsettled air would in some minds have stamped me as a dreamer and zealot the housekeeper was slowly propounding some difficulties while she prepared orange rind for marmalade when a child ran past the window and came bounding into the room it was a pretty child and as it danced laughing up to me for we were not strangers nor indeed was its mother a young married daughter of the house a stranger i took it on my knee different as were our social positions now this child's mother and i had been schoolfellows when i was a girl of ten and she a young lady of sixteen and i remembered her good-looking but dull in a lower class than mine i was admiring the boy's handsome dark eyes when the mother young mrs lee entered what a beautiful and kind-looking woman was the good-natured and comely but unintellectual girl become wifehood and maternity had changed her thus as i have since seen them change others even less promising than she me she had forgotten i was changed too though not i fear for the better i made no attempt to recall myself to her memory why should i she came for her son to accompany her in a walk and behind her followed a nurse carrying an infant i only mention the incident because in addressing the nurse mrs lee spoke french very bad french by the way and with an incorrigibly bad accent again forcibly reminding me of our school days and i found the woman was a foreigner the little boy chatted volubly in french too when the whole party were withdrawn mrs barrett remarked that her young lady had brought that foreign nurse home with her two years ago on her return from a continental excursion that she was treated almost as well as a governess and had nothing to do but walk out with the baby and chatter french with master charles and added mrs barrett she says there are many english women in foreign families as well placed as she i stored up this piece of casual information as careful housewives store seemingly worthless shreds and fragments for which their prescient minds anticipate a possible use some day before i left my old friend she gave me the address of a respectable old-fashioned inn in the city which she said my uncles used to frequent in former days in going to london i ran less risk and evinced less enterprise than the reader may think in fact the distance was only fifty miles my means would suffice both to take me there to keep me a few days and also to bring me back if i found no inducement to stay i regarded it as a brief holiday permitted for once to work weary faculties rather than as an adventure of life and death there is nothing like taking all you do at a moderate estimate it keeps mind and body tranquil whereas grandiloquent notions are apt to hurry both into fever fifty miles were then a day's journey for i speak of a time gone by my hair which till a late period withstood the frosts of time lies now at last white under a white cap like snow beneath snow about nine o'clock of a wet february night i reached london
My reader, I know, is one who would not thank me for an elaborate reproduction of poetic first impressions, and it is well, insomuch as I had neither time nor mood to cherish such, arriving as I did late, on a dark, raw, and rainy evening, in a Babylon and a wilderness of which the vastness and the strangeness tried to the utmost any power of clear thought and steady self-possession with which, in the absence of more brilliant faculties, nature might have gifted me. When I left the coach, the strange speech of the cabmen and others waiting round seemed to me odd as a foreign tongue. I'd never before heard the English language chopped up in that way. However, I managed to understand and be understood, so far as to get myself and trunk safely conveyed to the old inn whereof I had the address. How difficult, how oppressive, how puzzling seemed my flight! In London for the first time, at an inn for the first time, tired with travelling, confused with darkness, palsied with cold, unfurnished with either experience or advice to tell me how to act, and yet to act obliged. Into the hands of common sense I confided the matter. Common sense, however, was as chilled and bewildered as all my other faculties, and it was only under the spur of an inexorable necessity that she spasmodically executed her trust. Thus urged, she paid the porter. Considering the crisis, I did not blame her too much that she was hugely cheated. She asked the waiter for a room. She timorously called for the chambermaid. What is far more, she bore, without being wholly overcome, a highly supercilious style of demeanour from that young lady when she appeared. I recollect the same chambermaid was a pattern of town prettiness and smartness, so trim her waist, her cap, her dress. I wondered how they had all been manufactured. Her speech had an accent which, in its mincing glibness, seemed to rebuke mine as by authority. Her spruce attire flaunted an easy scorn to my plain country garb. Well, it can't be helped, I thought. And then the scene is new, and the circumstances. I shall gain good. Maintaining a very quiet manner towards this arrogant little maid, and subsequently observing the same towards the parsonic-looking, black-coated, white-neck-clothed waiter, I got civility from them ere long. I believe at first they thought I was a servant— but in a little while they changed their minds, and hovered in a doubtful state between patronage and politeness. I kept up well till I had partaken of some refreshment, warmed myself by a fire, and was fairly shut into my own room. But as I sat down by the bed and rested my head and arms on the pillow, a terrible oppression overcame me. All at once my position rose on me like a ghost, anomalous, desolate, almost blank of hope it stood. What was I doing here, alone in great London? What should I do on the morrow? What prospects had I in life? What friends had I on earth? Whence did I come? Whither should I go? What should I do? I wet the pillow, my arms and my hair with rushing tears. A dark interval of most bitter thought followed this burst, but I did not regret the step taken, nor wish to retract it. A strong, vague persuasion that it was better to go forward than backward, and that I could go forward, that a way, however narrow and difficult, would in time open, predominated over other feelings. Its influence hushed them so far that at last I became sufficiently tranquil to be able to say my prayers and seek my couch. 
I just extinguished my candle and had lain down when a deep, low, mighty tone swung through the night. At first I knew it not, but it was uttered twelve times, and at the twelfth colossal hum and trembling knell I said, I lie in the shadow of St. Paul's. End of chapter 5